Welcome to the Advent Houston podcast. At Advent, our mission is to embrace, embody, and extend the grace of Jesus Christ to the Texas Medical Center, Rice University, and the surrounding neighborhood. We're glad that you're here with us today. Well, good afternoon again. Um, I have I think I've met all of you all, but in case I haven't, uh, my name is Taylor Leachman, uh, the pastor here at Advent, and we are uh, currently going through a, this kind of very first sermon series as we've launched is on our mission, vision, and values. Um, and so last week we began the discussion of our values as a church, um, and we talked more about what does it mean to embrace both truth and mystery. Um, and uh, if, if you hadn't had a chance to, to hear that, um, we have all of the sermons online. I, I think we're about to even have a podcast uh, coming this next week or so, but um, you can also like watch them um, because Emmanuel records it all and it's awesome. Um, and so anyways, uh, we just want to commend that to you. Um, this week, we're going to do our second value, and that is, what does it mean that we want to embody Jesus in kingdom ministry? And so if you were to go onto our website and look under our, the about section and then the mission, you'll see the values listed there, and they kind of are, uh, they expand if you click on them. And if you click on, on this particular one, to embody Jesus in kingdom ministry, there's four bullet points. Um, and these are, these are those bullet points. This is what we mean when we say that. We, we want to embody Jesus in kingdom ministry by remembering that Jesus sends us into the world as he has sent. And he invites us to participate in God's redemptive work. Second, by trusting both the ends and the means of God's work in the world to King Jesus. Third, by being flexible, creative, and bold with our ministry while seeking God's wisdom. And fourth, by equipping and encouraging our leaders, members, and attenders to take faith-filled ministry risks that might fail, trusting that Christ's ends will be accomplished. So as we kind of do this type of sermon series, it's a little bit challenging because it's neither, uh, it's, it's, a, it's topical, um, but we're also using and preaching through the scriptures on what they have to say about this particular topic, right? So it's, it's sort of more than topical um, in that regard, but it's not exactly expositional. Right? We're taking what do all of the scriptures have to say on this particular topic, but then we're also looking at this particular scripture as it relates to this topic. My point is saying this. Some of these bullet points we're not going to talk about today. Um, there's kind of no way to do so, but we actually did talk about the first two um, in our sermons on why our name is Advent. Um, because that's a value uh, of who we are as a church. But we're going to focus more on these last two bullet points uh, this afternoon. Um, and so uh, I want for us to be thinking a little bit more about uh, what does it look like for the church to work now that God has, has called us to do so in light of his kingdom and what he has come to do. So what does working in, king, in the kingdom of God look like until Jesus comes again? What does it mean to work not for our own little kingdoms, but for God's glorious kingdom? 
And so I want to look at that with uh, this particular passage, the parable of the talents here in Matthew 25. And um, as it is a gospel reading, I'm going to ask us to stand uh, for the gospel reading, and, uh, and then I will read it for us. For it will be like a man going on a journey, that being the it here is the kingdom of God. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his own ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once, and he traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground, and he hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. And his master said to them, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the gospel of the Lord. You all can be seated and let's pray. Our Father, um, Lord, as we consider this passage, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I've never dunked a basketball. Um, Despite having played high school basketball and despite being tall, I have never done it. And the reason why I have never done it is that I have never tried. Um, Why, you might ask? Well, it's actually pretty simple. I am afraid, or I was afraid. There's no way I could do it anymore. I was afraid that I couldn't do it back in the day. Um, Because in my mind, if I never tried, then I couldn't confirm my inability, right? No one could say with any certainty that I could not dunk a basketball, right? And we can do this with all sorts of different things. We can do this with sports. We can do this with work. We can do this with school. We can do this with, like, asking someone out on a date, right? Um, If I don't try, then I cannot fail. And the failure is what ends up hurting, Right? We, we fear failure in our day-to-day lives, and we, we try to mitigate it. And this is true in the church as well. We fear trying something new. 
Um, we, we fear trying a new venture like a church plant um, or a new ministry uh, into, a, in, into a new part of town with a new demographic that's always in transition, right? And, and so these things can be frightening, right? a, a church plant is something that many of us have been praying about and working for years now, but you can imagine the fears that we face continually, that we feel. Right? What if we can't find a location for worship? Right? What if no one comes? What if, what if the return on investment is nowhere near the amount of money that we had to raise to do this sort of thing? Right? Sometimes the fear of failure can be less communal and it can be more personal when it comes to the church. Maybe, you know, like someone I know is facing massive doubts and so I better not get involved because what if I mess up? What if I make their doubts even worse? Or maybe we can fear kind of something similar, which is what if their doubts actually um, kind of spread to me? I, I catch secondhand doubt, right? Um, better not take that risk. But the parable that Jesus tells us here at the end of Matthew's gospel instructs us in how we should live. In light of the fact that Jesus is about to ascend to the Father and leave his servants behind, right, just like the master here is doing in the parable, how are his disciples supposed to live? How can they overcome their fears and uncertainties and act on behalf of their master when he isn't right there telling them exactly what they're supposed to do? Particularly, how are we supposed to work on his behalf? How are we supposed to fill this mission until he comes again? And so I want to talk about this passage in three ways. First, just to kind of give some background info on the passage. So we're going to do that first, and then talk about the workers, and finally the master. Um, So let's first talk about the background info. Um, We have a disadvantage in interpreting this passage because the word talent is in our English language, and there's a circular aspect to the way this definition has worked. We only have this word in the English language because of the scriptures, and so then we read our definition back into the scriptures, and over and over and over it goes, right? It's very circular. But if we go back to when this parable was first written, we would know that the talent uh, is actually just a unit of weight, and particularly it's a unit of weight of currency, Um, And so it it was a large amount of weight. Uh, And depending upon what type of metal uh, you you had, you either had more or less currency. And so most historians believe that modern-day equivalent of of one talent would be sort of the equivalent of Three hundred to eight hundred thousand dollars, depending upon uh, the rare metal that you would have, and like this was written like five years ago before inflation, so who knows what it is now? I um, I know that's a big disparity, and that's not really the point. The point of the parable here isn't about the amount of money. The point of the parable is to say that it is a ton of money. To say that it is a ton that has been lavished upon the servants that has been trusted to them. Because a servant or a day laborer might earn maybe one or two talents total in their entire working lifetime. The master is entrusting a huge amount of money to the servants, to the workers. He places enormous trust in them. But the point of the talent within the context of the parable, as Jesus is telling it and applying it to the life of the disciples, it isn't about the money specifically, but rather it's about the action, or it's about the ability um, that, that, that God gives to them accordingly. 
That word that is translated ability is the same word in the New Testament that's consistently translated as power. Um, it's the, the Greek word dunamai. Um, it's where we actually get the word dynamite from. Um, when Paul writes to the Romans, he says that the gospel is the dunamai. It is the power of God over Satan and sin. It is the ability. So these talents represent the ability or the power that has been gifted to the servants to work on behalf of the master. Now, power is something that is, is talked a lot about in our current culture. And power on its own is not something that is wrong. Power is actually God-given. That's what the scriptures teach us. He has all of the power and ability, right? He's the one who speaks and creation happened. He's the one uh, who even the wind and the waves obey. He's able to speak and heal the sick, to bind up the brokenhearted, to cast out demons with the word. Right? All of creation, his creation must submit to his power or his talent, so to speak, and, y'all, you know, he gives us a portion of that talent as humans. We are given power and we're given ability. As Genesis 1.26 reminds us, he's given mankind the power and ability to have dominion and to have authority over the rest of creation. Now, not for our own sake, but as his governor, so to speak, right? He's the one ultimately in charge, but we rule his creation on his behalf. We are the governors for his world. So power in itself isn't bad. It's actually God-given. But what do we do with that power and that ability is what is good or what is bad. Do we use that power and ability to bless others or do we use it to bless ourselves? Do we use it to bring honor and glory to the one who gave us influence and ability or do we use it for our own vain glory? Right? The desire that we all kind of have to be adored and, uh, and to be looked at. I remember I was talking with my kids about what does that word glory mean? Glory is a word that in, in kind of Christianese we throw around without really ever defining because it's kind of a challenging word to describe. It's weighty. It's heaviness. But one of the ways I like to think about glory is, um, you know, when somebody does something, like I, I do a lot of sports. When somebody does something good in a sporting event, what do they do at the end of the play a lot of times? You know, look at me, look at me, kind of that awesome, awesome glory. You're basking in it. Well, the glory that God is calling us to is not our vain glory, but it's a reflective glory or a glory back to him. Look at him. Look at him, right? So what do we do with that ability? What do we do with the power that has been given to us? Well, we don't want to be too narrow with our application of what it means that God gives us these talents. It's our money, yes, but it's also our abilities, it's our gifts, it's our relationships, our workplaces, our neighborhoods, it's the words and the deeds that God gives to us, it's our strength, it's our power, and it's our influence. So what the parable is talking about and teaching us here is what we are supposed to do with God, with the things that God has given to us. And so let's the second point here. Let's talk about the workers and apply it particularly to, uh, to our lives. And though there, there are three different workers and three different amounts of money that are distributed by the master to the workers, we can categorize the workers in two different ways. You have the faithful workers and you have the unfaithful worker. Um, so let's talk first about the unfaithful worker. 
the unfaithful worker, right, within the flow of Matthew's gospel, um, the, the, this teaching narrative that begins really in, in Matthew 24 is what we call the Olivet Discourse. Jesus is on the Mount of Olives and he's teaching his disciples about all that's going to happen when he goes away. Um, and so in, in, in the larger context of what Matthew has been doing, he's just finished seeing and, uh, Jesus casting woe upon woe to the Pharisees and the scribes. He's cast woe on the unbelieving portion of Israel right before our section here. So within this context of the parable, we see the unfaithful worker is actually compared here to the Pharisees and the scribes. For they inherited the law and the prophets, and they did nothing with it. They buried it in the ground for fear of doing it wrong, right? They were called to bless. They were called to be a light unto the nations, and yet they kept that light hidden. But of course, the unfaithful worker of the parable extends far beyond that historical context. It extends to all of us as well. Because how many of us not also struggle to do anything in light of God's good and gracious gifts that he's given to us? And it's all of us who would rather... <clears throat> Excuse me. Who would rather stay within our own Christian community than bless others and tell them about the blessing of Christ's saving grace? It's all of us who would rather hold on to our gifts, abilities, finances, and build our own little kingdoms, or at least not like risking our own, uh, our own very carefully crafted way of life. It's all of us who say, I have worked really hard to get where I am. Why would I jeopardize any of that on a risky investment? Like a new church. Like maybe giving free food to a grad student that might never walk through our doors. Like a like relationship with someone who's wholly different from me, ethnically, educationally, experientially, politically. Today, if we're honest, we have a lot in common with the unfaithful servant. Let's talk about the faithful servants here. Though we see one unfaithful servant, there are two faithful servants. Right? And they are given different amounts based on their abilities and resources. As the passage says, they're entrusted with their talents, and then immediately they go out there and they do something with it. They do business with them. And the word immediately that describes these two faithful servants is a clue as to what we are actually supposed to take away from this very passage. The servants didn't need to ask further questions of the master. They didn't need to better understand the goal or the endeavor that the master wanted for them, right? the, the parameters or the job of which they were supposed to operate. They didn't wait for flow charts or job descriptions or, or a sign from the Lord. They didn't ask the master for anything. Did they, did they not ask because they were lazy? No. Did they not ask because they were prideful? Did they not ask because maybe they, they were afraid that, that the demands were too great? No. Now the point is that they were so in tune with the character, with the person of the master, that they had the very same mind and attitude of him which is a hearkening back to Philippians chapter 2, to have the very mind of Christ. They not only understood their master's goals, but they also understood their master's nature and character. And because of that like-mindedness, or what we might even call faith, they didn't need to delay. 
They were able to immediately act and put his money to work. They take the money and they take a holy risk, a faith-filled risk, as our value says, and they seek the growth of the master's domain. That's why we want to equip and encourage our leaders, members, and attenders to take faith-filled ministry risks at Advent. These servants happen to make a return on their investment, but the parable, um, it doesn't actually say that they needed to make a positive return in order for uh, them to have been successful. Because when their master comes back, they give back to him the initial investment um, as well as the additional money that was, that was made. And pay attention to the master's response. He doesn't respond to the two servants in the way that you might expect, someone who's just had his money doubled. Right? He doesn't praise them with the language of fruitfulness, like, man, that's awesome, I've got all this money now, or well done, good and fruitful servant. He does not say that. Instead, the master says, well done, good and faithful servant. It's their faith. It's the faith in the master and with his property that is noteworthy. The return on investment is superfluous. The servants had nothing to do with the return. In fact, they didn't make the talents grow. They were just faithful stewards. And the talents grew. Right? So when we apply this parable, we often do so as individuals, um, as individuals thinking like, well, I'm a servant and you're a servant, and what do we need to do particularly with our abilities and the talents that have been given specifically to me or specifically to you? And yes, we should apply this as individuals, but we can forget just how community-oriented the world of the Bible actually is. Um, So I want to apply it this way as well. We as a church are a servant. We as the church of Jesus in the world today are one of these servants. So may we as Advent and may we as the bride of Christ over the entire world right now, may we use our individual and our collective talents, our collective influence and power and abilities for the flourishing of God's good creation to fulfill that Genesis 1:26 promise, to have dominion, And to rule it on behalf of another, one who is coming and whose kingdom has come. May we be a people who testify to what the new heavens and the new earth are going to be like. And may we do so because we've been given this unbelievable trust and unbelievable gift from our Father. Because our master is not a master who withholds, but he's one who gives. So let's look at, at the master I am no economist. I know there's probably many in here who are far better uh, at it than me. Um, But in my very first economics class, we began the very first week talking about the concept of scarcity. Um, And scarcity is the concept that in a limited world, in a world where there's a limited amount of matter or goods, there will always be uh, an aspect of demand. The uh, The less of something that there is, the scarcer it is, the higher the demand. But y'all, we live, we breathe as if everything in this world is scarce, right? Like the toilet paper scare of COVID, right? We are, we are nervous about running out and we want to hoard it up for ourselves. We live and breathe as day workers with no savings when God has given us far more than one talent, Because God has promised us inheritance of 
all this world because we are his sons and daughters if we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ. Our, Our view of the master is what actually drives our actions here. If we believe that Jesus is a cheapskate, withholding from us or taking from us, then we are going to be even less likely to take risks with the things that he has given to us. But not only that, we're likely to be selfish with it as well. But if we believe that Jesus has plenty more where those talents came from, then we are far more likely to graciously and wisely take faith-filled risks. We will remember in those moments that God's economy is different from our economy. Far from, from being a scarce economy, it is the economy that somehow five loaves and two fishes feeds 5,000 with leftovers. Right? It's the economy where somehow sinners are turned into saints, where rebels are turned into sons and daughters. This is God's economy. And far from being withholding, our master is the one who uses all that he has to bless. He's chosen the path of humiliation that we might be exalted. He's chosen the way of the cross that hoarders like you and like me might be forgiven and seated at his very dinner table where he lavishes upon us. He's shown that there is no fear for any of us who are united to him because in him we cannot lose. We don't need fear try dunking, much less trying anything else that he has called us to. Let me conclude with this. I I know there's a lot of uh, physicians or doctors in training here in the room, but um, even for those of us who aren't, uh, we all know there's a famous uh, kind of oath that doctors all take called the Hippocratic Oath, right, to first do no harm. Um, but what if that was the essence of what a physician was, right? where maybe a physician is just sitting there thinking, well, all I'm responsible for is doing no harm. So I know that this kid has a compound fracture, but I don't want to do any harm here, so I'm not going to reset it because right? I'd rather risk. Uh, I don't want to risk putting him in more, more, uh, uh, more harm, so I'm going to do no harm. I'm going to leave it alone. right? Or, you know, I don't want to risk doing any harm to this cancer patient, so I'm not going to put them through chemo. I know chemo can be pretty hard, so I don't want to risk anything. Um, do no harm, right? Um, well, that's not what the essence of a physician actually is. Uh, if, if the Hippocratic Oath and boiling it down all the way to that is what a physician was, nothing would actually happen. Because first, doing no harm is a proper and good oath for a physician to make, but they're called as a physician to heal. They're called to take extreme risks, but you do so because without risks, the patient couldn't get better, right? Sometimes the harm from doing nothing can outweigh the potential harm of taking a risk, right? Well, God has given us an abundance of blessing, and we ought not to hoard them for fear of doing harm or for fear of failure. Rather, as Jesus came into the world to save it, We should not hide his abundance. We should show it forth. We should show up and be present with people who need, who just need a a calming presence, or they need somebody to be there with them in their pain. We should use the power and ability that God gave us for his glory, to show forth his glorious and everlasting kingdom and what that will ultimately be like. That it somehow is, is a kingdom where tears will be wiped away 
and all that is right and good will be, uh, will be. We should use our resources, our time, our money to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ in word and in deed, that he is a loving and a good king, and he will reign forever. You know, the talents that, that we've been given, um, it's a fortune. God has given us a fortune to this church. And there are far, is far more than we could ever add up in our bank accounts independently. The God of the universe has given us his very self. He's given us his son who invested his talents by dying so that we might live. In his economy, there's no scarcity to his power. There's no scarcity to his blessing. He turns water into wine out of nothing. He gives us blessing gives us blessing to all who have placed their faith in him. So may we live in light of that by remembering that Jesus sends us into the world as he was sent and he invites us to participate in God's redemptive work by trusting both the ends and the means of of God's work in the world to King Jesus, by being flexible, creative, and bold with our ministry while seeking God's wisdom, and by equipping and encouraging our leaders, members, and attenders to take faith-filled ministry risks that might fail, but trusting that Christ's ends will be accomplished. May we do so trusting that we don't need to create the most fruit. May we do so trusting that we are called to be faithful, not fruitful. And may we have it said of us, well done, good and faithful servant. Would you all pray with me? Our God, we thank you. We thank you for this parable. Um, At times, it can be easy uh, to overread certain things into this parable and think that somehow you are the master who's harsh. But that's not true at all. You're not withholding. You're blessing. You shower upon us gift after gift after gift. And so may we live in light of that. May we pass on to others what you have given to us. May we take those very talents And may we give them forth to others, whether or not they may bear fruit, but trusting that you are the one who bears all fruit. And that in your kingdom, a kingdom that will have no end, Father, you are making all things right and good. And that um, that you are taking even our very mistakes and they're turning them into your glory. And so, Father, we live in light of that and we thank you for it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.